Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, that part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest is Nicole Avina. She's the author of a book called Sugar. Wes just got a copy in the mail. So thanks, Nicole. Appreciate that. I mean, going through it. So we're going to be talking about her work with uh, sugar or lack of sugar. She's a research neuroscientist and a pioneer in the field of food addiction, which I've felt, and I'm sure many people have felt in their lives. Oh, man, I want a piece of cherry pie or whatever. So we're going to go into uh, into her work and into this book. So, Nicole, thanks for coming. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah. Well, tell me a bit about your background and uh, what led to thinking about creating this book and then writing it. Well, you know, my background is really, I guess, a bit unique for a book like this. A lot of times when I think people write books about, you know, the experience of having a food addiction, it's coming from a personal experience. I actually have been fortunate in my life in that I have never had any real issues with food or an eating disorder or anything like that. But I did come into this field from a different angle. I was a graduate student um, doing my PhD in neuroscience, and I had just started. I was at Princeton. And what I was trying to figure out with my advisor, what I would focus on for my research project, we started talking about how it was sort of strange that, you know, so many people were struggling with obesity and we were seeing obesity rates going up and up and up. And even though, you know, there was tons of advice out there, people still really found it hard to just eat a healthy diet. And it seemed like it might be more than just this whole idea that people don't have willpower because we were starting to see, you know, a lot more processed foods on the market, a lot more foods with added sugars. And so we started to sort of toy with this idea that, you know, maybe the foods are addictive. Maybe there's something about the food that people are eating that makes it like really irresistible, just like how, you know, drugs and alcohol could be irresistible to some people. So we started doing a bunch of experiments, just really asking the question, is sugar addictive? And so kind of fast forward, I guess, 20 years. <laughs> and then, you know, we're, we're now at the point where there's a, a lot of research in this area. And so that's why I wanted to write this book, Sugar List, to really synthesize the research, talk about sugar, what it is, where it's hiding, and really help people to understand how it affects their health so they could make some changes to then, you know, hopefully better their health by reducing their intake of sugar. Yeah. Well, I'm in my late 40s, and I remember in, in high school and all that, uh, you know, very few people were overweight. It was like a, you know, a token, as they call it, token fat kid or so, you know. And I've, I've never been skinny, so I've always been on the heavier side. But now, it seems like everybody's overweight. In certain places you go, it's just everyone's overweight. It, it's crazy. It's, um, yeah. There's a big, you know, it's interesting when you look at the United States especially, there are certain states that have really high rates of obesity. You know, we're talking like over 50% of the people living in the state are considered obese. And so... I mean, it's a significant public health problem. And it's not just about, you know, how you look and whatnot. It's it's really about the fact that when people have obesity, they're at much greater risk for developing a lot of these, you know, medical problems and psychological issues that 
are not necessarily as common in people who have a lower body weight. You know, have you looked at uh, the, the role of the microbiome in, uh, governing cravings and affecting what people want and don't want? Have you, has your research stuck more, uh, you know, just the person's somatic cells in their body? Well, you know, we've really, in my lab, because we're, you know, neuroscientists, we've been pretty heavily focused on the brain that's, you know, above the neck. But, it, it, you know, I'm glad you brought up the microbiome because we are learning so much about the connection between the gut and the brain. And so, you know, what's happening in the gut is really often dictating what happens in the brain. And so that's why it is important that we, you know, think about this from the standpoint of of, you know, what you put in your body in terms of food, it's going to end up in your gut and that's going to send messages to your brain that are going to dictate your health and your cravings and, you know, all the other aspects of what goes into, you know, appetitive behavior. So I think that that story is emerging and it's really, it's really interesting so far. Yeah. Like I was uh, sick for a few weeks and now I'm just about over it. I'm getting better. But, you know, this has happened before, but you know, I was really sick for one day I didn't eat. And then I started eating again slowly and things got better. But the things I was eating before, you know, like now I could really taste the salt and the sugar and things. It's like, wow. It just seems like it was amplified like a hundred times. And I, I remember that's happened before when I've been sick. So it's interesting. I wonder if the body, if sugar is, uh, let's say, a poison to the, to the body and too much salt and too much this and too much that. But when you're sick, maybe... Because your immune system has been activated, maybe that's why these tastes are highly exaggerated and makes you not want to eat them. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I think that could potentially be the case. I think that, you know, again, when we're sick, right, our immune system and our bodies are going to do everything that they can to make sure that we get better and don't get worse, right? And so it kind of makes sense that, you know, things that are probably not good for our health, like too much salt, too much sugar you know, would probably be avoided and our bodies wouldn't want those and we would kind of reject them. Another idea, though, I think could be that if you do go a day or two without having, you know, a lot of sugar, right? If you have, if you get an illness and you're just, you don't eat or for eat anything for a day or so, a lot of times, you know, it just takes that amount of time for your taste buds to really just shift in a way that, you know, now you taste the actual food, right? You you can taste what it really tastes like. When you're consuming foods with added sugar day in and day out, you know, often we have a tolerance to that taste. We don't even taste it anymore because we're just so used to tasting it. That's why people often need stuff to be sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. So I think it could be a combination of, of both of those ideas. So what instances have you seen where there's like a reset in what someone wants? Like their palate seems to be a reset. It seems like sickness does it. What else have you seen? Well, certainly, I mean, when people make the decision to change what they're eating and decide, you know, okay, I'm going to cut back on the added sugar. That's really when you start to see a lot of changes. And, you know, people will often comment about how foods that they used to think were delicious now suddenly taste aversive because they're just so sweet and they just, you know, it's not an ideal level of sweetness. And, you know, I think that that's one of the the factors that can help people when they are cutting back on added sugar, because then if you do say, okay, let me have a, a slice of this cake that I used to absolutely love, you might find that it actually doesn't taste that good anymore. And that's because, again, our brains and our taste buds are changing to adapt to that change where we're not constantly stimulating it with added sugar. I know. What, why would there be a craving for sugar? Like, what's the benefit of it? You know, it's, it's your body telling you, ooh, I want this. But why would it tell you it wants it if it's detrimental to it? Well, you know, it's really interesting. We have this evolutionary drive 
to like things that taste sweet. And so if you think back to like our hunter and gatherer ancestors, you know, we used to have to walk around a forest and look for a berry bush and, you know, hopefully find one. And then when you found that berry bush, you would eat all the berries, right? Because they're good for you and you need food. And the sweet berries are the ones that are safe to eat, right? The ones that are sour, that have fallen to the forest floor, that, you know, are moldy and dirty. Those are the ones you don't want to eat. They're not going to taste sweet. They're going to taste sour. and They're probably rotten and bad for you. So we developed this way in which we think about foods in that if it's sweet, it's safe. If it's not sweet or sour, then it's usually not safe. And now the problem is that's not true anymore. <laughs> now, you know, just because something is sweet, doesn't mean it's safe because we have so many processed foods that are dominating our food supply that are loaded with added sugar. Now all this sweet stuff isn't necessarily safe for us, but we still have that biological drive to eat it. And so that's really what we're up against. I mean, we're really fighting our, you know, evolution against now our modern day food environment and the types of foods that are really, you know, the source of most of the calories that people are consuming. So what are you trying to work for interventions or are you just simply trying to understand why people would, you know, would crave sweets? So like, like, what's the goal of your research? What are your specific research questions you're trying to answer? Well, it's a great question. It's changed over time. I mean, certainly when we first started doing this work, it was purely empirical in the sense that we were just wondering, like, what does sugar do to the brain? What does sugar do to our behavior and our psychology? And could this be a reason why people are overweight, obese, why they struggle to make healthier food choices? And so I think now I am at the point in my career where, you know, I am interested in understanding how can we use this information? How can we use the research that's out there that we we know about sugar and how it affects our health and how it can affect our brain and hijack our brain essentially to make us want to eat more and more of it, how can we use that to make some change? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. And I think that, you know, that's really a critical problem from a public health standpoint that we really all need to be thinking about because, you know, the rates of obesity are going up among children. We're seeing type 2 diabetes in little kids. We're seeing fatty liver disease in little kids. And the, I mean, these were things that you would never see in children. 50 years ago, it was extremely rare for a child to have type 2 diabetes. And now it's it's becoming common. And same with fatty liver disease. It used to be the case that the only people who had fatty liver disease were people who were severe alcoholics, like, you know, the 55-year-old alcoholic who had been drinking for the better part of their life. And now we're seeing fatty liver disease in little kids. And it's not because of drinking alcohol. It's because they're consuming so much sugar. And what happens is that the sugar causes fat to bind to liver, just like alcohol will do over time. But we're seeing it exacerbated and rapidly happening in kids. So 
I really think it's important for people to be aware of what's going on and and to be able to hopefully make some changes in the way we think about our food environment, think about the types of foods that we eat, think about, you know, how we might change this for our kids because right now it's it's not looking good. So what level of awareness do, do regular people have about this? And then what do you think would be a good intervention? You know, first letting them know so that they're, they're aware of this. Are they aware of what? That, that foods are now engineered to be addictive? Or what, what should people have in their mind as they listen to this? Well, I think, you know, it's always important for people to get the information about the science. And I think that sometimes that message gets a little bit lost because, you know, there's so much information out there these days, right? You know, people have to really sift through all of it to figure out, you know, what is being spun a certain way and what is, you know, actually the the case. And I mean, for me, I think it's important for people, you know, to know about the addictive nature of sugar, to know about the long-term health effects that it can have, which, you know, include not only things like diabetes, but, you know, over time, people are developing cardiovascular problems. I mean, it used to be the case. I don't think that you and I are that far off in our age, because I remember when I was a kid, you know, it was a whole thing to be avoiding fat, right? There was this whole idea, like in the early part of the 90s, that, you know, fat was bad for your heart and high fat diet would cause heart disease. And a lot of people, were avoiding fat at all costs. And I remember, you know, and and you probably do, there were all these products that were coming out that were fat-free. And if it was a fat-free cookie, then that was great. You could eat as much as you wanted of it, right? Because it's fat-free, so that means it's not going to be... (laughs) Well, it turns out that when you take the fat out of something, it tastes like garbage. And so what a lot of the food companies were forced to do when they had to go fat-free due to public demand was to go and add sugar to make it taste good. So all those products that said fat-free, what they didn't tell you was that they were high in sugar. And so we ended up basically, I think at that point, developing an addiction to sugar as a society because we were basically inundated with all these products with added sugar and sold the promise that it would protect our health and our heart if we ate them. And now... You know, we know that it's actually the sugar that can cause heart disease, too. It's not just saturated fat, but actually sugar's linked to heart cardiovascular disease just as much as fat is. So we really, I think, need to understand that and, and know that it's important to consider these things and also to know that these are long-term implications. I, I think that's one of the problems that we have a hard time with wrapping our minds around. It's kind of like smoking, you know, like when people think about smoking tobacco or smoking cigarettes, they, you know, teenagers, if you say to them, oh, don't smoke, you're going to get lung cancer, you know, 30 years from now, they don't care, right? Because they don't worry about 30 years from now. They're worrying about what's happening tomorrow. Now, now we can tell them you may have significant problems over the next five, 10 years. Watch just 30. Exactly. Exactly. So that's the thing with sugar. You know, again, when we talk about this and think about like, okay, you know, you're not going to drop dead today from having an Oreo cookie. But guess what? You know, you're going to get health complications probably pretty soon down the road if you don't make some changes in the way that you eat. So I really think that messaging needs to get out there and hopefully, you know, it can help people and inspire them to maybe make some changes. So what is your role in all this? What, you know, from a neuroscience perspective, what are you trying to figure out? You know, what is it that is makes, you know, what triggers the addiction response or, you know, like what are you trying to figure out? again? Yeah. So we've been 
focus on initially really what triggers that addiction response. And so the thing that we've been able to really pin down is that sugar can affect the brain in the ways like drugs and alcohol can because sugar can release dopamine, which is a neurochemical that typically is released as the rewarding component of, you know, having a glass of wine or smoking a cigarette or doing cocaine or whatever your, you know, vice might be. Dopamine release is the hallmark of drug use. And so that's the high that people get and that's what people are always chasing. And, you know, food doesn't do that. Normally, when you eat something, it doesn't release dopamine in your brain, but sugar does. And so sugar can act like a drug. And I think that makes it very unique because it's a food, right? It has calories and, you know, it's included as an ingredient in many, many of the foods that we consume. But in my opinion, it's also a drug because if you look at the criteria for addiction that are laid out in the medical community in terms of, you know, what you need to do to be considered, you know, an addictive substance, sugar does all of them by far. Well, yes, I felt radically different before and after eating. I mean, so the act of eating definitely seems to have a big psychological effect too. With it. Yeah. The whole idea is, you know, when you eat something, it isn't just the calorie content and the nutritional value. I mean, I think that's one of the issues that we're facing these days with a lot of the highly processed foods is that they can affect us emotionally. I mean, people eat to manage their emotions. People eat to make themselves feel better. People eat when they're stressed. People eat when they're bored. And so there is a big emotional component to eating. And that's why a lot of times, you know, people feel differently after they have a certain type of meal. They might temporarily feel calmer. They might feel, you know, happier. And again, it's because depending on what you're eating, if it's got a lot of sugar in it, it's probably releasing that dopamine and it's affecting the brain in a way that is going to make you happy temporarily. But the problem is that that is a very short-lived experience. And, you know, very quickly after, you start to see that people then feel guilty and they feel down and they get those like, you know, the highs and the lows of addiction and the lows get lower and the highs don't really get any higher. And that's really that cycle that people find themselves in that leads people to, you know, end up overeating, end up, you know, eating in excess of, you know, what they intend to. And that's where we see a lot of times people developing many of the health problems that can arise. Yeah. I'm sure you've had this conversation with your partner. What do you want to eat? I don't know. What do you want to eat? I chose last time. Well, I don't want to eat there. Getting to like this fight, you know, over over nothing, and then when you go eat, you feel better, and you know, everyone kind of like stops grumbling at each other, and uh, you know, it's, it's more pleasant. Yeah. What, what what would drive like such significant behavioral change like that? What's going on? Well, I think you know that's like what they call being hangry, right? I mean, it's when you're hungry and you get a little angry because you you want to eat something, and you're you know getting a little impatient. And I think what ends up happening is if you go out to a restaurant, odds are whatever your order is going to have added sugar in it. I mean, anything with sauce on it or any type of, you know, aside from maybe a steak, <laughs> you're going to have added sugar added at some point. And so, you know, the feelings that people get that sort of more pleasant experience that they have and the pleasant emotions that they have after we eat have to do with satiety. I mean, if you are hungry, 
if you think about it again, going back to the hunter gatherer idea that I talked about a few minutes ago, you know, if you're a hunter gatherer and you're hungry, you're not going to be in a good mood, right? Because you got to be angry to go out and, you know, utilize all your resources to go make sure you're finding food so you, you can get it and survive. It's not a time to be, you know, kind of sitting back on your heels and smiling and giggling, right? But after you've had a large meal, then, you know, your fight or flight response that we typically have when we encounter a very stressful situation like lack of food can relax and we can, you know, take it easy. We don't have to worry. You know, we're, we're satiated. We're full. We're going to be okay. And so that's where the more pleasant emotions come in. So I think that's what happens essentially when, you know, people go through those different experiences like pre and post a meal. Yeah, people done studies on you know, how people feel psychologically before, during, and after a meal with a lot of sugar, without a lot of sugar, with fat, without fat. Has anyone looked at that? Yeah, there's actually been a an, a bit of work looking at, you know, how people feel on different types of diets in terms of their mood, in terms of, you know, just in general, if they feel satiated, if, if they feel happy. And, you know, what's really interesting, and I, I discovered this, you know, just through talking through a lot of people or with a lot of people for the research for my book, Sugarless, is that when people decide to make changes to their diet so that they've reduced added sugar, they find that their mood is more even and that they're not experiencing those like highs and lows. And, you know, a lot of times people will be essentially engaging unbeknownst to themselves in these little mini sugar binges all day long. You know, if you grab a granola bar and eat it, I hate to tell you, but you're binging on sugar. You might not be consuming a large volume of food, even if you're having a small granola bar, but you're binging on sugar. You're consuming a large amount of sugar in a small amount of time. And so, you know, people really kind of go through that all day. They might have, you know, a granola bar and a yogurt for breakfast. That's a ton of sugar. They might then have a, a coffee on the way to work with a ton of sugar in it. And then they have, you know, even a healthy salad with like salad dressing that's got a ton of sugar in it for lunch. And, you know, we go through these like binges throughout the day. And when you stop doing that and stop eating like that and, and really are mindful about how much sugar you're putting into your body, it seems like people don't necessarily have those up and down feelings. Like they do seem to feel more even throughout the day, calmer. And, you know, it really can have a positive impact on their mood. Have you personally, I haven't gone through the book yet. Do you have like a personal story where you uh, cut out sugar and evaluated what happened to you? Well, it's interesting. I I really... Or, or are you too sweet a person to do that? <laughs> no, you know, it's funny. I So I grew up in a house where my pa- I'm a first-generation college student. My parents, you know, they didn't know really a lot about like health and wellness. And, you know, back in like the 80s when I was a kid, like, you know, we had soda all the time and there was always, you know, chips and candies and cookies and there was a lot of snacks. And... I think that for me, I was overexposed to it as a kid, and I, I was a little chubby when I was an adolescent. And then when I moved out of my parents' house and went away to college, I really kind of discovered that there's a different way you could eat. Like, there's foods out there that, you know, aren't loaded with sugar, that aren't, you know, you don't have to have soda with dinner every night. And that wasn't really... A, something I was aware of, honestly, until I, I got into college and started to kind of see like, wow, I could eat really differently if I wanted to. And so I guess that's my personal experience. I, I, and I So since then, I haven't really liked sugar I, in the sense that I don't crave sugar. I don't really, you know, I'm not, I don't have a, much of a sweet tooth. I do like 
bread and pasta, though. I mean, I could certainly, you know, have some of that, but I, I don't really have much of a sweet tooth. And I, I don't know if it's because, like I said, I was sort of overexposed to it as a kid and I just kind of wanted to get away from it or if it's biological. But in the book, you know, I do kind of talk about, though, how it is we all have an experience with it, like, even if you're not struggling with, you know, craving sweets all the time, we're constantly exposed to sweets. We're constantly exposed to sugar or you have to avoid it, right? Because it's everywhere. <laughs> and it could be a challenge because, you know, it's hidden in lots of foods. It's pushed on people a lot. And it's not necessarily something that is easy to avoid. And so if you are struggling with being addicted to it, that makes it just even more difficult than it is. Well, animals love sugar too. Yeah, I had a, I used to have this dog and Whenever I'd eat any chocolate, he was instantly there by my side. And I would give him like tiny, tiny pieces of it. And he loved it, you know. And a few times he would like steal a piece of chocolate. And I told my daughter, I said, he has a chocolate craving. She's like, you gave him a chocolate craving. I said, no, no, he just naturally loves it. And it was just funny dynamic. But animals too. And I didn't give him a lot. When, you know, No one listening, please worry. But, you know, little, little, little bit. But he loved it. Yeah, I, I think that probably goes back to the same like animal instincts that we have, right? With like perceiving sweet things as being safe to eat. I mean, I would imagine, you know, the dogs at one time were wolves and, you know, I know wolves like to eat meat, but I'm sure if they get desperate enough, they'll eat, you know, a piece of fruit lying on the ground. So, and the other thing about it too, it's not even just about what we eat, you know, in the wild. If you look at the first food that babies eat, it's breast milk and breast milk tastes sweet. And so, you know, that's something too, again, it like uh, allows us to sort of pair this whole idea with, you know, sweetness with, something that's safe and going to be nourishing for us. Yeah, well, bacteria too, a lot of them like sugar. Not all of them, but, you know, a lot of them want their sugar molecules as a reward. You know, that's why they live in us, partially. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's part of the issue when you're feeding your body a ton of added sugar. Well, guess what? You know, the bad bacteria are going to be eating it that are in your gut. And it's it, they're competing then with the good bacteria that you want to have in your gut. And so it's this whole, like ecosystem war happening inside your body and sugar really is a big player in you know how things end up shaking out yeah like i've gone on a you know keto diet before and stopped sugar for a while first time i didn't i got really really sick for like two three weeks Ugh. i think i was like detoxing from a, a lifetime of it and then subsequently when i've done it it takes about two weeks and then i really stopped craving the sugar you know, the first two weeks are very difficult or one if i do eat a sugary thing again it seems heightened it's like rusty too much sugar in it, but it takes that adaptation period. I've seen. I don't know what you observed. Yeah, no, actually, absolutely. I talk about that in the book quite a bit because there is this period of transition where you know your body's changing, your body's adapting, and your brain is too. And that's when a lot of times you know people start to feel withdrawal symptoms where they might feel lethargic and tired, and they might have a headache or they might be irritable. And it's often the case that people think, oh my gosh, you know, my blood sugar must be dropping. That's why I feel this way. I don't feel right. But the reality is they're actually in sugar withdrawal. That's what happens. Like, it's just like nicotine withdrawal where, you know, if you are a smoker and you decide to quit, guess what? It's going to hurt for a couple of days. So it is something that you kind of have to get through. But yeah, I, I think that that two week is really like the sweet spot for most people where, you know, then the cravings start to subside. They they start to feel better. They don't feel lethargic. They don't feel 
you know, irritable and, and they can really then see the benefits of it. And then for some people, it isn't two weeks. Some people, it's shorter. I mean, it really varies depending on the individual and I think their unique, unique experience with what they've been eating, you know, up to this point in their life. So where are we headed? There's a lot more childhood obesity. There's a lot more adult obesity. I mean, we're not, he's not looking good. Do you see them as continuing to worsen unless we get some serious understanding on this quickly or where everything's headed? Yeah, I think it's got to change for sure. I, I think that we're getting to the tipping point now where, you know, we don't want to have, I, I, I mean, I, I don't see why we would want to have half the population having diabetes. I mean, that's, and the fact that it's dictated largely by the food in our food environment is really, to me, a problem. I mean, you know, even lately we have this surge in, you know, people taking GLP-1 drugs so that they don't crave the food, right? So that they don't want to eat. So they won't eat all this food. And it's just so curious to me because it's like, well, why is the food even there if they're not supposed to eat it? Like if the food is the problem, why are we not going after that first before we, you know, give people a drug to help them avoid that food that's bad for them? And it's, I think, something that hopefully we'll start to see changes, but it's going to take some time. I mean, if you look back at the history of tobacco, you know, it's very similar in terms of, you know, back in the 19, you know, 30s and 40s, there would be advertisements with doctors and dentists and, you know, people promoting smoking cigarettes saying, you know, it's a great way to help you control your weed. And, oh, my doctor recommends Lucky Strikes. And, you know, all of these ad campaigns that were kind of built around this idea that, oh, yeah, it's fine to smoke. Like, don't worry about it. It's good. And, you know, it took, what, 50 years after that for us to get to the point where we had, you know, some major changes come out because we learned like, hey, guess what? Smoking actually isn't good for you. It's pretty bad for you, actually. And that's what led to the changes, you know, with limitations on advertisement. That's what led to changes where people can't, you know, promote these products to children. You know, we can't smoke on airplanes, can't smoke basically in most states, like pretty much anywhere in public anymore. So I think we have a long way to go. And I'm not saying we have to like ban sugar and you can't like, you know, eat it on an airplane. But I do think we need to have more awareness around the dangers of it, more information for people to understand how much sugar is in the foods that they're eating, and just essentially more of a control over how much of it is being utilized. Because right now, the food companies can put as much sugar as they want, as many different types of sugar as they want in any food product and slap a label on it and sell it in the grocery store. And people yeah. buy it. Well, I interviewed uh, Rob Wolf. He's like a big paleo diet guy. And he talked about you know what it was, like these snack corners or some kind of new, new snack. And they mix sour and sweet and spicy and some other stuff in the same bag. So as you're eating it, you you experience these different extremes of taste. And he said he had called the company that produced it, and they essentially admitted to him, yeah, we did that deliberately because then you don't tire out of the sugar, you don't tire from the salt, you don't t- and it gets you to eat more. Yeah. It's a pretty sinister way of doing stuff, but that's what they did, and it works. Yeah, and you know that's basically known in psychology and appetite research as something called sensory specific satiety. So if you have a bag of, you know, cheese flavored chips, you might sit there and you eat a bunch and you're like, all right, I'm kind of full now of cheese. I'm sick of eating cheese. But if you can change up the taste 
forget it. I mean, that's gonna that's a game changer, right? Because you're never gonna get bored with that same taste. You're not gonna get satiated to that same taste. So yeah, I mean, but that's the type of thing we're we're kind of up against, right? You're you know we're up against the machine that wants to sell all this stuff and make money and you know not all these companies are asking the bigger question of you know is this good idea is this healthy i mean it's kind of like how drug dealers don't really sit back and say wow i wonder if like kids are gonna buy my drugs and and die or overdose like they usually don't care they just want to sell their drugs yeah no makes sense i mean also too as you're talking if, if i whatever i eat doesn't really directly affect other people you know, it's not like I eat a, a pie and they get sugar. Smoking does. You know, someone would smoke, it would stink, it would affect you, it would get on your clothes and all the other stuff. So I think maybe that's why it was easier for people to push back on it. Like if you look now at vaping, vaping doesn't really smell or cause, you know, the other problems that smoking did. And it seems like, you know, people don't really say much about it. It's kind of internal to the person. And so it doesn't affect me. Who cares? I think, yeah. unfortunately, sugar consumption is kind of like that. It's not obvious that it's so bad for other people. Right. Yeah. You know, it is a really good point. And I do, though, think that on some level, we do experience secondhand sugar in the sense that, you know, maybe not directly like from inhaling smoke right in our nostrils like you would if you were sitting next to somebody who was smoking a cigarette. But let's just say you and I are sitting next to each other and you have, you know, a dozen donuts on your lap. Well, I might be more inclined to want to eat a donut because you've exposed me to it. And if you had not sat next to me with a dozen donuts, I might never have even thought about eating a donut. And so we do have this sort of, I guess, experiential pressure in the sense where, you know, people can put us in situations where they're priming us to eat more sugar than we would have in other situations if they had not. It's kind of like, you know, if it's somebody's birthday at the office and you bring in a cake or whatever. I mean, if it wasn't their birthday, you probably weren't going to eat a cake, right? But because it was brought in and you kind of have social pressure and you know what? Now you kind of want a piece of cake because you see it and it looks good. Now you're going to eat it. So I do think there's something not quite secondhand smoke level, but there is still this ability for other people's intake of sugar to affect us in some way. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah social pressure. You know, oh, have some cake. Come on. It's it's so-and-so's birthday. Come on, have some. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Especially like if you go on a, on a diet and you're around your family a lot, eating with them, have this happen. You know, come on, why don't you have some cake? Why don't you have some, you don't want this? You sure you're okay? Oh, you're on a diet. Oh, you know that kind of stuff. And yeah, it's not uh, not very supportive. It's true. Yeah, and I I think that you know I mean imagine if like you were an alcoholic and people said that to you like nobody would ever say that right? They would like yeah. even mention it or if you said oh I'm not drinking because I have a problem with alcohol they're not going to say oh come on you know you could have a problem like they don't do that people don't do that because they take it seriously like oh yes they they have a problem but you know with food you have to justify your behavior you have to argue back and I think that makes it really difficult for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, I know. I agree. So what does the solution look like? Is it going to become partially from like public service announcements and positive peer pressure and re-engineering foods and educating people and like, you know, how big of a problem? What kind of approach do we need to solve this? I think we need to take every single possible approach and do them all at the same time. I mean, it's going to be about, you know, changing the consumer demand 
I mean, right now we demand processed foods, we demand convenience foods. I think we need to change that and, you know, go back to demanding more simple foods that are not necessarily these engineered products with all these different ingredients and all this added sugar. I also think that there needs to be a bit of a culture shift in you know, taking this seriously. We've normalized obesity. It's normal to be overweight or obese now. If you look at the, you know, if over 50% of people are struggling with being overweight or obese, that means it's normal, right? So, you know, I think that over time, we, we're starting to slowly just normalize this stuff. Like, oh, it's it's sort of now normal for kids to get prediabetes and then get diabetes. And it's sort of normal now, you know, for, you know, people to develop these you know, health problems early in life when they used to not have them until later in life because of their excess body weight now. And I think we need to be careful because that's a real slippery slope because, you know, if you're just saying, okay, well, it's just, that's just the way it is. Yeah, people get diabetes, people get, you know, cardiovascular disease when they're 25 years old. Well, then that just makes people feel like that they don't have to do anything to change it or avoid it. And I think that's where we're starting to get into dangerous territory. Yeah, I agree. So what's like the overarching goal of your book? What do you hope that uh, readers uh, get out of it? Well, I really hope with my book Sugarless that, you know, people will be empowered to understand what's happening in the food industry and what's happening with our food supply, what's happening in our brain when, you know, we eat these things and, you know, why we're compelled to eat more and more and more of them and really understand the addictive nature that these foods can have over people. And I really hope that it'll inspire people to make changes because, again, it is all about consumer demand. If, you know, consumers say, we don't, we're not going to buy all these products with all this added sugar then the food companies aren't going to make them. There's no incentive for them to necessarily produce these things if they're not being sold. And so I do think that if we can get enough people on board with that and enough people to sort of really see the health benefits they can reap from cutting out, cutting back on added sugar, then we'll start to see this sort of ripple effect where, you know, maybe the food companies will realize they have to make products that are healthier, less added sugars, less sweeteners in them. And, you know, hopefully that will then encourage more and more people to make healthier choices down the road. Okay. And where can people get your book? Is it on Amazon and everywhere now or is it released? Yes. Yes. So Sugarless is out. It's available wherever books are sold. You can find it online uh, at Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. You could also find it in all the indie bookstores. And if you want to learn more about my research and the types of things that we're doing in my lab, definitely check out my website. It's drnicoleavina.com. And you can also learn about other books that I've written and other work that we're doing in the nutrition and the psychology space there. Okay. Well, excellent. Well, Nicole, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. All right. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.